Good morning. It's good for me to be with you all. I enjoy worship. You guys are a great singing church. I come from a singing family. When I'm around people that actually open their mouths and sound like they want to sing, um, that's a good thing. Uh, particularly the male voices, you guys are like ringing, like ringing true. Just, it's a great tenor voice in this church. Uh, not that, ladies, it's not that I don't like your voices. I just, you know, it, it's easy for men to have a cup of coffee in their hand and just sip that coffee instead of singing. So thank you for uh, making my heart leap this morning by the, the great singing. Um, I'm a friend of your church. I'm a friend of your, your pastors uh, and many of your staff. Um, something that Nate didn't say, because he didn't know it, when I came to Northern Virginia in 2012, your church is the first church that befriended me as I was planning a church in Alexandria. And so your pastors have been not just friends, but mentors to me. Um, and so I feel right at home with you guys, you guys, and so hopefully you will allow me to, to kind of be at home as we work through the Word today. Open your Bibles to John. We're going to look at a short passage, Jesus walking on the water and what that might uh, say to us in our current day. John 6, we're going to look at a few verses, verse 16 through 21. I'll read these for us, then pray, and then we'll jump into the Word. John 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had, yet, had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you for the gathering of your church. I love that song we just sang. It, it, it echoed the words that we need you. And that's the confession that we express this morning, that all of us are here because we're desperately needy people. The songwriter says that, that we need you like the, a new day needs the sun. We need you like the desert needs water. We need you like a new baby needs its mom. Lord, we need you. So would you come and, and appease our need through your word, by your spirit. Help us to sense that, that we are in your presence and give us words of life that can change us and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Perhaps you've heard the saying, Life is hard, and then you die. And if you haven't heard that saying, you guys look like you're old enough to at least have seen one or two Die Hard movies, right? Which kind of conveys that same, that same thought. And of course, that's a very cynical slogan for a very particular pessimistic worldview of, of how life goes. So life is hard. Things don't turn out the way that you would like them to. Uh, perhaps relationships become hard, You're, you get older, hair loss, job loss, perhaps you experience some debilitating illness or sickness that just does you in. And on top of that, you have natural disasters like COVID. But wait, there's more. You actually die, like life ends. Now that's kind of a morbid way to start a sermon, isn't it? Like, all right, Jeff, pick me up a little bit. We're going to get to that. Um, but here's the good news. As Christians, that's not the narrative from which we 
should live our lives, right? Uh, firstly, we know where we're going when, when our life ends. And so regardless of how simple or tragic your life's journey may be and how it may end, we know that at the moment of death, we are ushered into the presence of God. But more than that, we, all, we also know that perhaps there are things that God has for us in this life, uh, even in the hard times. And I think that's what we see in, in our text today, that perhaps God might allow hard things to help us grow. Specifically, we see Jesus sending his closest friends, putting them in a boat, telling them to go across the sea to teach them a very important lesson that they need to learn for life. And here's the lesson, and I want you to listen for this lesson as we're working through the text this morning, that God works through all the events of our lives to actually strengthen our faith. This is an important text. It's a uh, there's a lot happening in John. There's a lot happening in John 6 because this is one of the first moments uh, just in fantastic fashion that John's narrative reveal, reveals to us in many different ways that this man, Jesus, is actually God, that he's deity. In the words uh, preceding the verses that we're looking at, Jesus actually feeds 5,000 people. More than that, if you include the women and children that were there, probably three times as many uh, as, as what the Bible says is 5,000. And so the narrative informs us that when this, this crowd of people saw this sign, this sign of Jesus miraculously feeding all these people with just a, a little crumbs of bread and a few fish, that they immediately wanted to force him to become king. And so the, the, the Jews were dispersed throughout the, the known world at that time. Those in Jerusalem, they were all waiting for this prophesied Messiah. This, they were hoping for a political, a political genius who was going to come and satisfy their physical needs, but more so overthrow the Roman government and end their oppression. And so they saw that in Jesus. And Jesus, of course, reacting to what he saw in these disciples trying to force him to become king, decides to do the very opposite. He withdraws, and other gospel texts tell us that he went to the mountains to be by himself. Before he goes to the mountains, he tells his closest disciples, hey, guys, find a boat, get, in the, get, get, get on the lake, and row all the way across, and I will meet you in Capernaum. And there they were to wait for him uh, until he came. So there's some very important things in the text that it'd be easy to skip over, but I want to bring them to your attention. Firstly, we have no idea. We don't know anything about this boat. We don't know how big it was, how many oars it, it, it would, would uh, take to, to, to have this crowd roll, uh, roll across the lake. But the text alerts us to something very important. It says the disciples left in the evening, which means it was dark. In verse 18, we learn that uh, during the night they encountered a great storm. The text calls it the, the Sea of Capernaum, but this, this body of water is most, uh, most popularly known as the Sea of Galilee because it's the largest body of water in the northern region uh, of, of Israel, uh, which is the region of Galilee where Jesus was born and uh, lived most of his life. And specifically in terms of the characteristics of the Sea of Galilee, it's, uh, it's located in this huge depression about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by these gigantic hills and mountain ranges. Uh, most importantly, Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet above sea level. And when the cold air descends from Mount Hermon down to about the level of the lake, here's what happens. 
that cold air and that warm lake water um, causes sudden violent storms. And so that's probably what's happening in this moment with these guys uh, on, the, on the boat uh, in the water. We don't exactly know uh, how many disciples are uh, in the boat. We don't know exactly which ones of Jesus' closest disciples are in the boat. But we can assume that most of them, several of them, are there. We assume that Andrew and Peter are there. Guess what their profession is? They're fishermen. We can assume that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are there. Guess what their profession is? They are fishermen. And it would be wrong to equate a fisherman with a sailor, but definitely fishermen, are, like sailors, are kind of sort of acquainted with being on the water. Which, I mean, it, it makes sense that they wouldn't be afraid of being in the water in a boat under most circumstances, not rain, not even a storm. So we ask the question, like, what is it that would make a person that's familiar with the water, a sailor or a fisherman, kind of uneased uh, in the sight of, of being in a body of water? And it's wind, violent wind. And so that was, that's, that's, what, that's what the text is alluding us to. There's a lot of symbolism here. One of the first things that we should see that this boat really is a picture of our lives. It's giving us this, this uh, grand illusion of, of what life is kind of like, uh, what, we, uh, uh, what life is like uh, to live as a Christian in the world that, that, um, that we're living in, particularly in trials. In verse 17, he says, it was dark. Anybody afraid of the dark? All right, don't raise your hands. There's probably some of you, like me, that grew up. I, I, I shared a room with my brother for most of my elementary uh, years. And every time we got in bed and turned, uh, turned the lights off in our room, I shivered under my covers because for whatever reason, I had a crazy imagination. And when the lights went off and it was dark, I just thought that there were alligators in the floor that were going to pop up and get me. It, crazy, but that's the way I thought. And so fear, I mean, darkness kind of does that to us, doesn't it? Darkness escalates the fear factor such because we can't, we can't see what's going on. We can't see what's on the floor. We can't see what, what lies ahead. But secondly, in verse 18, John narrates, the sea becomes rough. And so imagine yourself. You're in a small boat. Although you're not alone, the seas become rough. You're being tossed to and fro. You're in distress and you're concerned for your life. And I think that's what challenging circumstances can do to us. We feel like our health, our livelihood, perhaps our family relationships are all in jeopardy. Here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us plainly that we will experience such trials. Paul, as he's uh, partnering with Barnabas and uh, getting ready to launch the early church in Acts 14, he says, we must go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes we forget that, that there is a purposeful um, hardness to, to some of the life that we will live, and God purposes it. And so let me offer you at least three reasons why these first disciples had to endure this storm and commensurate with that why you and I should also expect that we will endure trials as well. And the first of those is the nature of the environment. The nature of the environment that these first century disciples are experiencing, but also the nature of the environment that we live in. And it has to do with the Sea of Galilee for them. The Sea of Galilee is, by nature, a dangerous body of water. By its breadth and its length and its depth, you add the wind to it, and it makes it just a, a dangerous body of water to avail yourself to. 
And I think the, the picture here is a picture of, of life as we live it. There, uh, there is a small uh, segment of us that we look at the, the influences of our life and how the, the world works, and sometimes we think that, uh, that, that life is one gigantic amusement park where everything is safe and we can live you know, perfectly with no danger at all. And we expect that that's what's supposed to happen to us. Another perspective would be that um, you know, we, we live in this giant shopping mall, or today we would say, I live in this, this gigantic Amazon warehouse where I can just pick out the things I want, I don't have to pay for them, and there's someone at every corridor or, or, or every stand, and they're waiting to, to, to cater to my needs. Obviously, that's a, a false sense of peace, a false sense of, of, of control that we crave, a false sense of life as it unfolds for, for most of us. I think because it, you know, this, is, this is a special weekend in our country where we are remembering the, uh, the heinous acts of terrorism on September 11, 2001. And, and what September 11, 2001 reminds us, for those of you that were alive then, is that the world is really like the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's smooth and calm, but at any time it can get very stormy. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you look up the word sea, it often is a symbol for life, the, the turbulence of life. The sea is often uh, uh, speaking of uh, the turbulence of the world in sin. David writes in this psalm, Psalm, uh, psalm 69, he says, Save us, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Skipping down to verse 14, he says, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me deli be delivered from my enemies and, and from, the water, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. What is, uh, we'd have no, we have no recollection of David experiencing a lot of time on the waters. And what is he doing for us there? He's giving us a picture of life, and he's using the, the metaphor of water to say how turbulent, how difficult life can be. A second reason why these disciples had to endure this storm is because Jesus sent them. It's easy to, to miss over that. Like Jesus actually told them to go on the water. They could have gone on land and, and gone around the, the Sea of Galilee, but he told them to get on the boat and go on the water. I think this is part of our calling. There is a, there's a theology of suffering in our Bibles that can't be ignored. It's Jesus' will that his disciples should be tried by difficulties. It is his will for these disciples to take a trip across a lake in a boat in the midst of a storm. One commentator says, trial is part of the diet which all Christians must expect. It's one of the, the means by which God's grace is proved in our lives. I think it's important for us to know that this stormy experience on the seas comes immediately after the high moment of, of Jesus providing this miraculous feeding. And so people are all in a good mood. Their stomachs are full. They're happy. They're full of joy. And then this moment comes for his disciples where they, they, they fear for their lives. Someone said, sometimes our sweetest times of communion are often meant to prepare us for the trials to come. And the trials are intended to cure us of spiritual pride or presumption. But let me give you one more reason why these disciples were perhaps subjected to this storm. And it's a little bit less obvious, uh, but equally important. And it's this. It's because they obeyed Jesus' command. Sometimes when we obey Jesus, um, it, it puts us in, in, uh, in difficult, difficult spots. 
For those of you that know your Old Testament, think of the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet that God had given a, a mission to go to Nineveh and preach a, a message of repentance. Uh, Jonah did not want to do that. In fact, Jonah did the opposite. He disobeyed God and he ran the other way. So what does God do? God causes him to be swallowed up by a, a, a great fish, uh, only to be uh, spat out three days later. The lesson of Jonah is that God sends storms to oftentimes chasten us for disobedience. It would be easy for us to, to, to look at this, this picture of, of, of Jonah and, and err in our thinking that every time we experience hard times, God is disciplining us. He's chastening us. But I, I, I would encourage you, think of things like Jonah in a different way. Perhaps sometimes God brings the storm for other reasons. Think of the pillars of, of our faith. Think of, of Moses. If Moses had just dismissed God at the burning bush, he, he wouldn't have had to, to go through the, the heartache he did dealing with the people of Israel, those stiff-necked people that he complained about all the time. He wouldn't have had to deal with Pharaoh and all of his antics. Think of Daniel. If Daniel had decided to, to not be faithful to God, he wouldn't have even gotten thrown into a lion's den, and that wouldn't have threatened his life. Think of Paul. If Paul had simply gotten saved and stayed in Tarsus living a simple Christian life instead of planting all those churches, jeopardizing his life, he wouldn't have had to undergo all the persecution he experienced. But, of course, if all of these biblical characters had dismissed God or just simply disobeyed him, they would not have been the pillars that, have, you know, that God used to... To, to move the world, to plant churches, even to, to allow some of us to come to faith. And so here's the question for us. What do we do in the face of trials? I think these disciples give us a, a good purview of that. What did, these, what, what, did these, what did these disciples do? I think they kept rowing. They kept rowing in obedience to, to Jesus' command. Here's what Jesus says to them. Meet me on the other side. And they were diligent to at least try to do that. And so imagine the picture. They got this violent wind blowing against the boat. The wind is howling right in their faces. It's slowing their progress. They've lowered the sail off their mast. And they're absolutely going nowhere. And they don't even know if they're going to survive this, this storm. Verse 19 says, they had rowed about three or four miles, which tells you the, 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 I mean, how big the Sea of Galilee actually is. Three or four miles, and they are barely there. Matthew's gospel says they, they were still a long way from land when they experienced these turbulent storms on the water. And so what do these disciples do? They give up. They cast their roars over the sea. They're like, let's just let the wind bring us back to the other side. Do they just submit themselves? Like, woe is me. It's just going to be like, it is what it is. They don't do that. They actually keep rowing. They keep, they keep their course as best as they could. No doubt with a whole lot of discouragement and perhaps a little bit of physical pain. I think sometimes in the face of difficulty and discouragement, it's easy for us to give up. Like as a pastor, I gave up every Sunday night and every Monday morning as I thought about like the things I should have said or the things I shouldn't have said in my sermon. I think pastors right now, the pastors that I get to talk to every day that are planning churches and have established churches, uh, they're ready to give up because it's hard to pastor people who, who complain who, or, or who 
Uh, you can't satisfy with all the tensions that are going on in our country even now. It's easy to give up when life gets hard. But I think what we learn here in this text, God wants us to persevere. He wants us to be consistent. He wants us to trust and obey. And if he doesn't provide situations uh, where these things are required, how, we will, how will we then um, gain the muscles to, to, to grow in this way? Not muscles that you gain by going to the gym and lifting heavy weight, but muscles that you grow by exercising your faith in the midst of difficulties. How will we grow to be fervent in prayer? As Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6, 9, to not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up, if we faint not. We've got to keep rowing in the midst of faithfulness to God's word. So look at verse 19. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I think of all the things that, uh, that this these few verses present, it's easy to forget John was actually present. Like, he was on the boat. He, he isn't writing this from a, a, the vantage point of a second, secondhand knowledge. Someone didn't just tell John this. He was actually there. And with that, I think what John is doing is giving us some of the, and of course, he's writing the history of, of Jesus being God and the signs that he um, that, that he. Uh, did on the earth that proved that. But more importantly, I think for people who, who live 2,000 years from, from this, this time, he's giving us a few lessons, and I want to share a few of those as I slowly close. The first is, and we see it in verse 9, uh, the first of those lessons is a lesson about fear. And so, so far in this text, uh, we know that the disciples are out at sea, it's at night, they're in a storm, and they're only there because Jesus commands them to be there. And so uh, they, they have to be wondering, like, where in the world is Jesus? Uh, like, he, he, Jesus knows a lot. Like, Jesus is prescient. There's nothing that so far that, that he hadn't uh, demonstrated to us that he doesn't know. And surely he knew that if we were going to be on a boat in the lake in the middle of the night, that we would run into some trouble. And so where is he? Has he abandoned us? Did we do something wrong? Have we shamed him or ourselves that he would just dismiss us like this? I think some of us can identify with this, how our fears can, can lead us to feelings of abandonment, tempt us to be angry or filled with despair or even shame when stuff like this happens that we can't explain or do anything about. And so in this case, it is important to ask where Jesus was. And if we would glean in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, we learn from insight from those Gospels that Jesus actually went away to pray. These people were pressing him to become king. What does he do? He goes the opposite way. He, gets, he goes to a secluded place, and he's praying. One commentator says Jesus was not just praying. He, he probably was watching them, measuring how they would endure this trial and how it would in turn strengthen their faith so that he he showed up right at the moment where they, uh, they expressly needed him. I think the same is true in our storms. In our fears, we oftentimes feel alone. We doubt God's presence. We think about, I mean, we think like, does God even know that I'm experiencing the things that I'm experiencing? We ask, where is God? And the truth is, God, I mean, the, 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 the Old Testament phrase, God doesn't leave us nor forsake us, is true for us 
even today. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is physically in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews says that he, he's a great high priest making intercession for us, but he gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is with us, making the presence of Jesus real to us. And so the reality for us in any situation or circumstance is that we're not lost and all alone. There is no real danger to our ultimate well-being, regardless of what tragedy or peril we face on this earth. Jesus is watching over us. He's even singing songs of deliverance over us. A second lesson is that Jesus learned, uh, that, that we learn, and that these disciples learn, is that Jesus comes near to help us. He comes near. Again, John writes in verse 19, And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. I think it's one thing to have a friend that can respond to uh, a difficulty or a, a, a need that you might have in life by texting you, giving you a call, sending you money. They might even send you an encouraging note. But it's a totally other, uh, totally other uh, circumstance when that person gets in their car or gets on a bike or gets on a plane and flies from where they are to be physically with you. It just proves to you how much you need them and how much they mean to you. And that's what this scene is like. This is their friend. This is Jesus, someone that they know and love. But more importantly, this is their Savior who's come to rescue them in the time of their need. He shows up in the middle of their nightmare, this storm on a lake in a boat where they can't do anything for themselves. And guess what he does? He shares in their trial. Yet, he actually overcomes it, and he brings them through it as well. And I think that's why the incarnation is such an important doctrine. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, dwelling amongst us. This is what's going on in this moment, even though it had happened 30 years prior to that when Jesus was born as a baby. The incarnation says, God comes near to us in the person of Jesus by personally coming into our world, suffering with us in all the pains and afflictions of our human life. And so Jesus knows firsthand what it is to be human, what it is to go through difficulties, because he shared those with us. In the incarnation, Jesus comes. He puts on our flesh. Creator becomes a part of his creation. He learns our language. He walks our roads. He eats our food. He becomes one of us that he might ultimately save us as he suffers for us by going to the cross in our place for our sin. And so John says that when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water in verse 19, they were frightened. I mean, y'all ever seen anybody walking on water that's not in a Marvel movie? According to Matthew's gospel, they thought he was a ghost, and it wasn't until Jesus spoke actual words that their fears were relieved. Verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21, then they were glad to take him to a boat. And I think the lesson here is it's God's word that produces this calming influence for us. It's by reading our Bibles that our minds and our hearts are steady. It's through the scriptures that we grow more and more familiar with the voice of Jesus. And so, Portico Church, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, you aren't going to have the calming voice of Jesus such that you know it and recognize it when you need it. Read the Bible. And so we're invited to know Jesus that he's near and recognizes willingness to provide direct help 
and our troubles by turning to his word. A third lesson deals with the timing of Jesus' appearance. Matthew's rendition says it was in the fourth watch of the night. That means he was like, like dead in the middle of the night, like three to six o'clock. My grandma used to say, there's nothing good that happens after midnight. And this is true here, right? There's a couple of gospel songs my grandma used to sing. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Another gospel song says, He's an on-time God. You've heard many Christian testimonies say, you know what? God is never early, but he's not late either. He's always right on time. And I think the lesson is that we, ne- we should never give up. We have to trust the Lord to come at the right time of our need. And that's what Jesus does. As his disciples are on a boat, in a lake, in a storm, against a peril that they can't row against, he shows up right at the right time. But what I want to... Um, well, let me get to the last lesson. This last lesson uh, of, of several that we can continue to name is, is on Jesus' power to overcome our problems. A lot of times I think um, we, we hear songs, we hear people talking about, like, I got to hold on to Jesus. I think what this, uh, the, the metaphor of, of this narrative here is, it's not us holding on to Jesus, but really it is uh, it's him holding on to us and him taking care of us because we don't have the power to completely hold on to, to Jesus as long as we need to. And so Jesus has the power to overcome not only his own problems, but our problems as well. It, so, so this is a miracle, right? This, this is a miracle. Jesus walking on the water, perhaps even calming the water so they could get to, get to land safely. And John is using this as the fifth of seven signs to prove that Jesus is God, proving Jesus' deity. What John shows us is, is, uh, is, is that no one but Jesus, no one but the creator of, of, of heaven and earth, that, that God himself could walk on stormy waters. And the truth is, it probably was no more difficult for Jesus to, 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 to walk on water, to overcome the laws of nature, than it was for him to write them in the very beginning. Mark's gospel says, he got into the boat with them and the winds ceased. In other words, Jesus has power to steal whatever kind of storm that rages against you and me, and he can speak peace to our hearts. And perhaps that will be comforting to some of you that right now are in some kind of peril or difficulty in your life. But what I want for us to take from from this is that sometimes our greatest need is not actually to to be protected from earthly troubles, like the the, the travesty of of September uh, 11, 2001, although... uh, I mean, who would want to experience that again? But our greatest need oftentimes, I think always, is to realize the divine majesty of Jesus, a truth that we often neglect when when everything's going right. Here's what Peter says in one of his epistles. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A lot of words. What is Peter saying? He's saying trials teach us the lessons of grace. Here's how John concludes, and I'll conclude with this as well. Verse 21, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. 
So it's not clear if this is another miracle. We don't know if the boat, like, teleported to shore, or Jesus snapped his finger, and all of a sudden the seas were calm, and, or, or Jesus just jumped in the boat. All right, we got one more guy to row. We can finally get, we got the strength to get to land. We don't actually know that it's not, it's not conveyed to us. But somehow they, at this point, when Jesus is with them on the boat, they were able to safely get to their destination, to Capernaum. And so my concluding thought is this for all of us. If you belong to Jesus, if you are a believer in him, if he saved you from your sins, then here's what this conveys to us. You are in his faithful care. Now, this, this one narrative in John's gospel is, is recorded in three of the four gospels, and I think it's, it's, it's repeated several times because Jesus wants us to see the lessons these disciples had to learn but also know that we need to learn them as well. And I want to say a word to those of you who may be here because somebody invited you or maybe you found Portico Church online and you're here for the first time. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking about like, like, you know, life as you're living it. And this passage speaks directly to you as well, particularly two things. It's saying you live in a dark and stormy world. The second thing is, your life has or will have troubles. And so the question is asking all of us, but particularly those of you who don't, don't profess faith in Jesus, it's asking, do you have the nearness of someone like Jesus to come to your aid when you need it? And we're all needy. The, the message of the, uh, the overarching message of the Bible is a message of salvation. And the Bible expresses to us, it encourages us that, we, that the start point of, of finding God, of him coming to you, is that we admit our need. And here in this narrative of Jesus walking on water, I think the gospel is telling us we are, we are all pictured as the men who are in this boat. And if you have not professed faith in Jesus, you actually don't have a measure of the hope that these men had. Although they were in trouble, they were in peril, they can't help themselves, they at least have Jesus. And if you aren't, don't profess Jesus, you don't have that hope. And I think sometimes we, we, we think that our money, our influence, our position, the things in life that we've attained will save us. But the truth is, life can easily sweep all these temporal things away. But here's the good news. God sends us Jesus. And so the invitation is to accept Jesus' offer, to place his righteousness around our shoulders, to look at the cross in faith, and to trust that because we know him, he's near us, and he'll never leave us. Let's look at him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it would uh, not return void, that it would do the, what it's intended to do in the hearts of those who are present and those who are online. The words of the psalmist ring true. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Blessed are the man who take refuge in him. Lord, help us to heed these words of the psalmist, that when life is difficult, when things aren't going our way, that we don't throw in the towel and give in, but, Lord, that we reach for you, the one who can save us and deliver us. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Portico.